I thank you for Peter. I thank you for all the preparation, all the listening, all the study. I thank you, Lord, that he loves your word. He loves words and he loves imparting all he knows to us. So I pray, Lord, for your anointing on him now as he speaks your word to us tonight. In your name. Amen. So, you uh, heard what James said. If you're ill, get people to pray for you and you'll get better. A few do's and don'ts on this one. you also got. Uh, it needs to be the church elders you get. They need to smear oil over you. It only works if they use the prayer of faith and you need to confess your sins uh, to one another for the healing to work. Okay? You will have picked up uh, a hint of parody in that way of putting it, of course. Parody of how we're sometimes tempted to talk about prayers of petition, as they're called. What is sometimes characterized as name it and claim it, or occasionally blab it and grab it. You send your order into God, and so long as you fill the form in properly, he delivers the goods. Now, that's a caricature, and I'll make some uh, general comments uh, based mainly on other things in the letter of James. And then we'll look at some further points from this passage. Ancient people, first century people, tended to see themselves as pushed around by spiritual beings. Most things in life were outside their control. The thing to do was to get those beings who were in control to fix things to suit you. So, Greek and Roman gods, for instance, obviously. Pray to them. Do a deal with them by making offerings, etc. James's readers, or his audience, lived in an environment that found it natural to think like that. But modern people don't. Modern people have a history of a couple of centuries, I suppose, of thinking we've got the world sort of reasonably under control. Or if we haven't quite, science will get us there in due course. We sort of know it's not quite like that, but it may well be hard for us to get out of the way of thinking that we ought to have control. Where science hasn't yet fixed it, Maybe we can get God to do things for us. And so, though we would be horrified to admit it, petitionary prayer can easily be about reaching the parts that science can't reach, parts that other developments of human intelligence can't reach, a way of trying to influence God. Of course, none of us consciously thinks like that. I just found as I wrote this down, said it again just now, I thought, how absurd this will sound to you that one could actually talk about us and God like that. And yet, and yet, we don't consciously think like that. We don't think we believe a word of it. But it's not uncommon for people to act as if they believed something they would never dream of believing in. 
given the nature of the modern world and its thought patterns, it would be amazing if this attitude to prayer were not a major temptation. So, <clears throat> what does James say? It's no use looking to James uh, for an orderly, reasoned account of his point of view. You know, if I'd written the letter of James, we'd had a bit on prayer and a bit on work, faith, a bit on works, a uh, bit on, on, on this, a bit on that, and so on. Like it organized and going from one thing to another in a, in a sensible kind of way. And James doesn't do that. It's a, it's a big jumble. Uh, and I find him very, very difficult to read. And yet, when you read James, something sticks with you, doesn't it? So, anyway, let's start with, well, last week's passage. He says you have to be patient when you're oppressed. Yes, God will vindicate you against your oppressors, but he won't just zap them tomorrow. He'll deal with them in due time. Uh, look at the first part of chapter 4. Uh, he attacks the motives of those who pray for things out of their own selfish desires. Okay, he tells us a bit about how not to pray, and that's one. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Chapter 4, verse 3. But further on in the, in the chapter, Scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So, it's entirely a matter, in James, of what kind of persons we are as we approach God in prayer. Humble and pure of heart, at least. I came across this sentence somewhere as I was preparing. Prayer cannot be the mechanical cause of an effect, but must be part of the believer's relationship with the personal God. So back to chapter 5. I began with a caricature of how we may be tempted to read it. Prayer as a means to an end, with a few rules attached just to make sure it works. But that meant treating God as our agent for getting things done. You might imagine what I labeled the rules as a way of dealing with the problem of unanswered prayer. As if someone had said to James, but I tried it and it didn't work. And he replied, ah, but you didn't do X or Y or Z, did you? No, I d really don't think it's like that. James's overwhelming concern in this letter is how believers relate to God and to each other. What kind of people they are as they approach God in prayer. So he talks in verse 15 of the prayer of faith. What's faith here? 
two possible meanings occur to me. Tempted to say a wrong one and a right one. Um, should we say a worse one and a better one? The wrong one I think of as a kind of macho one. Have you got faith to move a mountain? And uh, that's a quotation, a reference to what Jesus, of course, says. Jesus talks about uh, moving mountains with faith. I suspect very much that Jesus was, as he was not above doing, using humorous, humorous exaggeration uh, when he used that phrase. I've never heard of it happening. But enough faith to achieve something, as if faith can be quantified. Like, have you got enough petrol in the tank for 200 miles? The better one, I think, is to see faith as trust. Well, what's the Greek word for faith? It's the same as the Greek word for trust. I won't bother you with it, but it's just one word. Same word for both. Faith, trust. We use those two words in English in really rather different ways. Trust in a person whom we know. We have no reason to suppose that the God we know, I have no reason to suppose that the God we know, is interested in moving Snowdonia to Norfolk. Um, James's readers weren't to expect him to zap their opponents immediately. You never know with God, he might want the opportunity to forgive them. If we're looking at communities of believers, which is what James was writing to, in a precarious situation, financially, socially, uh, potentially quite precarious, quite dangerous, they're trusting God for something that isn't just in this life. And that kind of trust is all about dependence on God. Trusting the creator God to come up with, one day, a new heaven and a new earth. As well as to comfort them and keep them company in the here and now. Now, I know what you may be thinking. Peter, you're just trying to wriggle out of that clear statement of scripture in verse 15. The prayer of faith will save the sick. Sick. Fact about the future. James's words could be taken as a statement, plain statement about the future, but they needn't be. Much depends on how you take James's tone of voice. Unfortunately, we don't have the recording of James dictating this letter. So uh, it's a matter of inference, of putting two and two together. He could well be talking about the potential for healing. His whole emphasis has been on personal integrity. Faith without works is dead. Lots on that, especially in chapter 2. So he's more likely to be saying that it's faith with integrity, faith with works, with honesty, that will heal you if anything does. And presumably... In this particular case, he's thinking mainly about the faith of the elders uh, that he's been talking about. First and foremost, their faith. In the Acts of the Apostles, we read, of course, of quite a, quite a number of people being healed 
in remarkable ways. Elsewhere, we also read of people being ill. Um, I thought about a chap called Trophimus, who comes at the end of uh, 2 Timothy, had to be left behind in Miletus because he was ill. I guess they prayed for him. Paul tells the church in Corinth about what he calls his thorn in the flesh. Now, we don't know for certain what that was. But a physical ailment is easily the most likely. And the best guess at what the physical ailment might be is eye trouble of some sort. Paul says he prayed for it to be taken away, but God said no quite firmly. So it's not safe to take James as saying that healing can be guaranteed. Of course, in verse 16, he does say, the prayer of the righteous person is powerful and effective. Maybe, as I was implying, the emphasis here should be on the word righteous. It's one of the main emphases of James's letter, after all. You see, the message that ancient people needed to hear was that the God of Israel was the all-powerful one, not the various pagan deities. And you prayed to him as a righteous person. When you prayed to pagan gods, you did a deal. Heal me, and I'll offer you X, Y, or Z. They might or might not do anything for you when you prayed, but they certainly couldn't care less about your righteousness. It was irrelevant, as long as you paid up on receipt of benefit. Coming to the modern world, we need to be careful, I think, about selling power to modern people. Modern people are obsessed with power. And as I suggested, prayer is spiritual, spiritual technology is the temptation and not the good news. The harder sell in the modern world, I think, is trust and obedience. We're to recognize and place ourselves under the power of God in humility and learn to recognize the temptations of power, the temptation of power for what it is. There was one other topic in this passage that I thought I ought perhaps to say something about. So, it may sound like changing the subject, but James seems to change the subject every verse or two anyway. So, um, yeah. In verse 16, James talks about confessing your sins to one another. And he connects it with prayer and healing. Should we be doing that? Confessing sins to one another. Uh, for Protestants, it's a bit of a no-no. That's what Catholics do, isn't it? It strikes me it could do a lot of good, but not necessarily. There is evidence, I believe, that the practice of confession in the Catholic Church can be beneficial for your mental health. There's also a real danger of stirring up harmful forms of guilt, I guess. And I certainly don't know enough about the practicalities to have anything useful to say about that, so I won't try. I do know enough about people in the Roman world to be quite clear that you couldn't, you couldn't just import the practice from James's churches straight into our own. It's because James says, do this, 
doesn't mean we should do this the same. Why? I mean, does not the Bible tell us how to live? Well, in the first century, there was virtually no idea of privacy, personal privacy, as something important. Everybody's life was much more open to public inspection than we can easily imagine. So confessing your sins to other people who know you well is nothing like as big a deal as it would be in our world, in our society. Just think of what secrecy, confidentiality, that secrecy we think of as maybe a bad word, confidentiality, that's very, very important for, for us, isn't it? Uh, confidentiality, um, data protection, it's all part of the same, same business. Um, think of what they mean to us and to our legal system and maybe you can see that we can't just import first century behaviour into the 21st. I remember many years ago hearing an Anglican vicar talking about saying the bans of marriage. Uh, there came a point where he said he wanted, always wanted to add a bit to the bans of marriage. You know, if any of you know cause or just impediment why these two persons should not be joined together in holy matrimony, ye are to declare it. And at that point, he said, he always wanted to add the words, preferably to them. The congregation chuckled, as I remember. Well, it wouldn't do to say such things in public, would it? It really would stir things up. I guess the original version made excellent practical sense in 1662. And um, back in the first century, neither James nor any other New Testament writer could have made head or tail of what that vicar was on about or why anybody might find anything to chuckle about. So I don't want to dismiss what James says about confession as irrelevant to us. We just can't copy first century customs in our age. What matters, and this is a matter of judgment, you sort of think, well, how could we apply this? What is there there that is really critically important that we might want to try and live out ourselves? And it's going to be somewhere in the area of openness between believers and openness between us and God, both, both directions. What format takes depends on all sorts of things. Almost a matter of how much openness can we realistically ask of these people in these situations. And of course, some individuals are a great deal more public or more private than others. Notice that we're back once more though with honesty and integrity. Two things that are critical, according to James, for our prayer. Notice one other thing, though. To start with, we looked at prayer as something an individual does with God. But James has brought the rest of the church in, too. The leaders are to pray for the sick, and individuals talk to each other about something you might have expected them just to talk to God about. What this suggests to me is that prayer is not something that we should think about as a subject in its own right. 
It's tied in with all sorts of other things in the life of the church. As I said, if I'd been writing the letter of James, I'd have had it neatly parceled up into different topics. But actually, James is doing something that has is true to the actual situation, he's, things he's talking about. Talk about prayer. But you can't say much about that without talking about this and that and the other. Which brings us back to where we started. Remember my false suggestion that you need church elders, oil, the prayer of faith, and confession to each other to make sure prayer works. We also added a few other things like uh, integrity and humility. And none of these, of course, are tricks to make sure prayer works. Yes, they go with prayer because they all, including prayer, go with each other. James is interested in them all because he's really interested in something else. Well, not something different, but the whole lot put together. Completeness. Not sure how many times that word comes in, James. I meant to check and forgot. Chapter 1, verse 4, definitely. Completeness or wholeness. Your translation may say perfection, um, which is not exactly wrong, but in modern English, that's a rather misleading word. I think completeness is better. James is concerned about completeness. Prayer is there in this completeness, as are these other things too. Read the letter of James to learn what's involved in completeness. But maybe as we've worked through that letter, and maybe continue to work through it with prayer and faith and humility and truthfulness and help from each other and all the other things in James as well. Uh, maybe we've actually come a bit closer to that completeness as a body of Christian believers. Thank you for listening.